Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And welcome to the Voices of King, a 13-part podcast from the AJC. Originally recorded in 2008 for a short documentary, we sat down with 13 people who were close to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in life and in death. This podcast was originally released in 2018 to mark the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's death. Now, as we move into a new era, we are revisiting these important interviews to give you a glimpse inside the making of history. We were proud to document these conversations then, and we are proud to present them to you today. Thirteen Voices. Thirteen people who bore witness to the last days of the life of Dr. Martin Luther King. On the 50th anniversary of King's assassination, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reached into its archives to bring to you stories from the people who knew him well and their unique witness to a tragic moment in American history. There's the confidant who went on to lead the city of King's birth, the family friend who helped King's widow bear the extraordinary burden in the immediate aftermath of his murder. In this episode, the reporter who stood in the same spot with King just moments before the civil rights leader was shot. Each episode is the unfiltered, unedited story of a King associate. Vintage recordings aired in their entirety for the first time. Their words, their memories as told to Atlanta Journal-Constitution journalists. You'll also hear from those journalists. AJC reporter Ernie Suggs, former reporter and author Jim Mooney, and former AJC photographer Puya Dianat. These stories take us not only through the harrowing day of April 4th, 1968, but bring us to the present. They examine King's legacy and in the end tell us much about how far we've come as a nation and also just how much farther we have to go to begin to realize a portion of King's dream. I'm your host, Ryan Horn, and you're listening to The Voices of King. He paced around his room at the Lorraine Motel without any pants on, smoking cigarettes, nervous. It was April 4th, 1968, and it was getting late. He needed to finish his interview with Dr. King. This was his first big story covering the civil rights movement in the South, which he was reluctant to even take such an assignment. One, because he was a black reporter with the New York Times, and two, because he was in the South. Earl Caldwell. A 30-something-year-old reporter, originally from Pennsylvania, was assigned to interview Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. ahead of his Poor People's Campaign. Just weeks prior, Dr. King was engulfed in embarrassment as a protest for sanitation workers in Memphis turned violent. King returned to the city and was determined to see this protest through as workers were fighting for more safety measures and better wages from the city. Caldwell had a chance to sit down with Dr. King on April 3rd, 1968, for an interview. He was shocked during the interview to hear from King that he wasn't receiving the support from other black leaders on the campaign like he expected. After their talk, King walked Caldwell outside onto the balcony, where he began to ask the young reporter personal questions. Where you from? What's it like being a reporter? You know, small talk. The two agreed to meet the next day to finish their interview. King would be dead 24 hours later. During an interview with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution 10 years ago, Caldwell recalls waiting for his chance to talk to King again when he hears that sound right outside his door. It was his reports from Memphis which informed the country that Dr. King had been shot. Former AJC photographer Puya Dianat. Yeah, he was the first uh, African-American national correspondent for the times what was the one thing that stood out the most to you about how he described what he witnessed that day in 1968 and you know 
what ultimately came of it. Like, talk a little bit about that. I think what was really interesting about Earl Caldwell's take on it was that from the second he got there, he was behind. He wasn't aware of everything about the movement. He wasn't necessarily seen as an insider just because he was black. And from the day that that happened and all of the investigations that he set on after that, I I sort of felt for him. He was the journalist that chased a story that he was never able to tell because of what he was thrown into that day. And I think he really talked about a lot of... I think he became really obsessed with it. I think he became incredibly passionate about it just because of what a big moment it was. But as a journalist, I don't know how when something that game-changing happens. I mean, that that's, that's the beginning of a chapter in every book about U.S. history is the year 1968. And Earl Caldwell had a front row seat for it. And he was always behind, though. He was not there that day. And he kept chasing it. And I think the he became an expert on the civil rights movement as a result. Okay. All right. My name is Earl Caldwell. And in April of 1968, I was a reporter on the staff of uh, the New York Times newspaper. And uh, my editors at the New York Times I should say the na editor of National News at the New York Times, Claude Sitton, uh, called me to his desk about uh, all around the first of that April and uh, outlined uh, what he wanted me to do, going to Memphis and joining up with Martin Luther King Jr. Could you, uh, let's start off by discussing that bit and where you were in the morning and how the rest of the day sort of shaped out for you being the only journalist that was able to witness. Uh, one of the things that Claude Sitton told me was that uh, I want you to get down there early. And he said, wherever King stays, that's where I want you to stay. And there was some controversy as to where King was going to stay and it was finally decided it was going to be at the Lorraine Motel. And I checked in at the Lorraine. As it happened for me, this was really my first major assignment in the South. I come from a small town in the mountains of Pennsylvania, and I was always uh, leery. I might even say afraid. I had a fear of the South, and I didn't want to go. But when Claude outlined this assignment, I, he, he said something that was really quite stunning to me. He said, uh, if King goes ahead with this poor people's campaign, it's going to, be a, going to cause a bloodbath. He said, he's got to be stopped. And he says to me, I want you to go down there and nail him, which was pretty tough stuff. I talked to another reporter about it on the paper. I said, I'm going to go, and uh, I'm going to take this assignment. I'm going to go. Nobody can tell me what to write. So I got to Memphis the day before Martin Luther King Jr. got there. I was there on the morning that he arrived. It was just as, I was like a rock star arriving there at the Lorraine Motel. And finally in time, I and all these people were new to me because I hadn't covered this movement, so I didn't know any of them. So I was spending all of my time introducing myself, trying to make them know me, but I did have a built-in advantage because I was from the New York Times. You wanted to speak to the national press. At that time, you spoke. There was no better way than to speak to the New York Times. So it wasn't that anybody was avoiding me. I had access. And the day before, the day before, I had an interview with Dr. King in his room at the Lorraine. Uh, just the two of us in the well, there was actually three of us in the room. It was Dr. King and myself, and then across the room was Ralph Abernathy, Reverend Abernathy. Uh, he was a, uh, it was sort of strange because he sat there quiet, never uttered a sound. I met him when I went in, never uttered a sound, but he just sat there while the interview. Had a wonderful interview with Dr. King that day. And then after the interview, he walked me out onto the balcony, and we stood on the balcony. We stood there, and he asked me a lot of personal questions about my life, about being at the New York Times, what it was like being a reporter, my situation. And we were, we were there on the balcony in almost the precise spot where he'd be killed at about the same time a day later. I ran off the balcony, went to my room, wrote my story, 
And he promised me, he said, you come back tomorrow, we'll finish our conversation. We'd run out of time for that day. And uh, he said that uh, we would finish our conversation the next day. So that next day, my whole day was built around, I'm going to have another interview with Dr. King today. And so that day I was preparing myself, looking at everything to go and meet with him that next day. As it happened, uh, of course, we never had that interview the next day. What, uh, you said you had a personal talk on the balcony. What sort of things um, can you Well, he asked me, yes, he asked me uh, how long I'd been with the Times. He asked me what it was like for me. Uh, one of the things that struck me is that all that was going on in his life, he was asking me these personal questions. He asked me if I knew another reporter there. His name was Gerald Fraser at the time. He said, Fraser traveled with him. He had been to New York about a couple of weeks earlier, and he told me this reporter had gone around with him. And uh, we talked about that, his trip to New York. Uh, but all of the balcony conversation was very personal. I, I was very struck by that, that uh, he'd be interested in my little career. Why do you think that was? that he would approach you and speak like that? I think he was genuinely interested because, you know, one of the things that uh, the reporter has, it's hard to separate yourself. When Dr. King's on that platform talking about the rights of black people, he's talking about me too. And uh, in my career, I was the first black person to ever become a national correspondent on the newspaper. I'm sure he was aware that as he went around talking to people that he began to notice that the press corps was not all white, that you were beginning to see black people in this press corps. And uh, I think it probably struck him that when he came to New York, Gerald Fraser, who was black, was covering him that the New York Times had sent me down to Memphis to cover him. Uh, I think he was very much aware of the media because in significant ways, you know, he used the media effectively to get his message out and to uh, talk to uh, the country about where he was coming from. Listen, um, talk a little bit about that day, how you were preparing and then, you know, come out and see what you saw on April 4th. Now, uh, you're talking about the day of the murder. The day of the murder, sir. Yes. Uh, the, can I go back to the previous sure. evening? Absolutely. When I get, went off the balcony that evening, first place is one of the things Dr. King had, uh, he shocked me. I was not shocked. I was rather stunned by some of the things he said. In particular, uh, when I asked him about the Poor People's Campaign, uh, he was getting a lot of criticism from other black leaders about going ahead with this Poor People's Campaign. And I specifically mentioned something about the NAACP. And Dr. King said he wasn't waiting to get everybody to agree with him. He said, if you wait till everybody says that, you, that everybody's in agreement, he said you would never do anything, that you had to go ahead. And he said he was going to go ahead. In Memphis, they were getting an injunction against his having a march there. And he told me that he was going to march anyhow, yeah, that he was looking, he was leaning to having a march anyhow. He said it was an illegal injunction and that uh, there were times when you had to go ahead and do what you believed was the right thing. You would accept the penalty, but you had to go ahead. But I was struck by how strong that he was in his position, just wasn't equivocating. And you know, this was the first time I'd ever sat down with him face to face in an interview. I was also struck by uh, the whole time I was in Memphis was how, uh, Perfectly, he was dressed. The way his clothes fit him, they were just, he was just really, it was very impressive. When I finished talking with him, he didn't tell me anything about we're going to have a rally tonight. No one had mentioned there was going to be a rally that night. I'm a reporter, you're, you're, things you're expected to know, and especially when you're on an assignment such as mine. My only business in Memphis was Martin Luther King Jr. 
I filed my story that night. I thought I had a good story. Filed the story, and my day was really done. As it happened, they, that night there was this incredible rally. And during this rally, Dr. King had made this incredible speech. I was not there. I was locked up in my room at the Lorraine Motel. There was a fierce storm. I mean, a fierce storm. And as I said, I had my own fears of the South and, and these things. And uh, I never left the motel grounds. I ate there. I went in my room. I stayed there. And never let, came out of that room that night. Didn't know anything. I woke up the next morning to this incredible speech that Dr. King had made. And I wasn't there. I was just finishing my rookie year as a reporter at the New York Times. How can you say to your editor, I didn't know I wasn't there? The first thing I did when I got up is I went everywhere to seek out the people that I had met who were a part of Dr. King's circle and to confront them about nobody telling me. They had told me. I don't remember which one of them said it. But one of them turned on me and said, well, you should have known. If you knew anything about the movement, you would know there's a rally every night. Well, I didn't know. And I didn't know those things about the movement. And I believe that some of them should have mentioned it to me, but no one did. So I woke up. I was angry and embarrassed. And also, I felt that I was in a very difficult, almost an untenable situation insofar as trying to justify, explain to my editors how I didn't know. So that was what carried me through, but I also knew this. I knew I was going to have another meeting with Dr. King that afternoon. And so usually the meeting would be late in the afternoon because he had a lot of things. They were arguing court about the injunction. But early in the afternoon, I began to try to send signal about what time I could go to his room and talk to him. And the afternoon was getting, was getting late in the afternoon. And finally, I began to get a little nervous. And so what I did is I wrote the bottom of my story, the second part of my story, B Madam, sent that to New York. And I just, all I had to do was talk to Dr. King, get that and put it at the top. The afternoon keeps getting later and later and I'm getting more nervous. And, and uh, finally I'm beginning to see that he's not going to give, we're not gonna have a chance to talk. I'd already sent the B matter. I put a top on my story. And I, the top I'm trying to put on the story, and I'm trying to send it to New York. And uh, I couldn't get the telephone line. You know in that little motel? They had it was an old-fashioned switchboard. Board. One call, one line, one call. And so I'm calling over there to that switchboard and calling that switchboard and finding this woman over there. I told her, I said, I'm from the New York Times. I'm trying to get my story to New York. I need a line now. The woman said, I don't care who you are, where you're from. I told you when we get a line, I'll give it to you. Do not call over here anymore. So uh, it was, uh, you know, the afternoon was beginning to turn to evening. And uh, the one thing I did know, you cannot miss the deadline. I could explain some other things, but I couldn't explain not explain missing the deadline and so as it happened I was talking about in my room smoking cigarettes out of nervousness you know you do things I took my trousers off for some reason and uh, I was talking about Ruben I thought I heard a rifle shot and I dashed to the door and uh, and I, as I say, you know, I come from the mountains of Pennsylvania, and hunter, family of hunters and all of that. I had a rifle shot, I'm sure of it. And I dashed to the door and a housekeeper, when I look up, it was a housekeeper. She had dropped a Coca-Cola bottle off her tray and it broke on the concrete walkway right outside my door. And uh, this woman's name was Ceola Shavers. Uh, there was a little bond between us because of that. And later she told me about what happened to her. But because I came out there, for some reason I left the door open when I went back in. And I don't know, 
Could have been two minutes, three minutes, five minutes. There was what I thought was a bomb blast. I thought, oh my God, somebody's bombed a motel. And uh, I dashed to the door. I don't know, one, two, three strides, you're in the doorway, this little room. And uh, I, I see these people off to my right, a little cluster of people over there, and they're jumping up and down. I, I don't know what they're doing, and you're looking, trying to, because I thought I would see, you know, some kind of destruction, some kind of evidence of this bombing. And I just saw these guys, I'm thinking, like, was that a firecracker? That poor joke, and I'm looking, and I see directly, you know, at eye length, straight, straight, almost, almost straight ahead, maybe a little to the right, but almost straight ahead, it, there was a, there was a, uh, an embankment directly ahead, but I could see over top the embankment, and there was a, in the thicket there, I see this figure in the thicket, and this guy's doing something. I couldn't tell what he was doing. He seemed to be twisting, turning, doing something. But all the while, I notice his attention is trained on something at the motel. And I'm watching him, thinking that he's going to give me the signal of what, indication of what it is. And while I'm watching this guy, this car roars up to my door and stops and roars back, roars up again, back. And the third time it comes up to my door, the guy stops. And I recognize him. When I had been going around the day before, introducing myself to everybody, telling them who I was, and they met this guy's name was Solomon Jones, and he told me some undertaker had given him this car, to, and his job was to chauffeur Dr. King around wherever he went. When the car came to the stop in front of my door, there I ran out in my shorts to where he this car was, and uh, he began to bang his head on the steering wheel, and I was saying, "Oh no, no!" I ran to the car. What happened? What happened? And then I turn around, and when I turn around, then I can see Dr. King's laying there on the balcony. And uh, that's how I saw it happen. So then I ran back in my room, jumped in my trousers, put on my raincoat for some reason, and grabbed a sheath of papers and pad, pencil, and then I ran out into the lot. I ran over where these guys were still jumping up and down. I knew them. Jesse Jackson, Andrew Young, all kings in her circle. And actually, I began to do the same thing they were doing, jump down. And uh, while we were there, the police came through a little opening down by the office and came running toward us. And I saw these little rifles and shotgun looking things and they're running at us. And I threw my hands up. I said, oh my God, it's the police. They're shooting us. I was, just didn't know. And a police officer came right up to me and said, which way did the shot come from? I was just so stunned because I was so sure they were going to shoot us. Uh, I, I couldn't ever answer that question. Policeman ran on. And uh, then there was a, uh, there was a uh, stairwell to the balcony there in the middle uh, and I ran over to that, no, no, it was over to the end. And I ran over there, ran up the balcony, and ran across to where Martin Luther King was. And when I got there, the only person there was Reverend Abernathy, and he had a towel, and he was down there, and I knelt down beside him, and, uh, and I'm looking in Dr. King's face, and I, I see this massive wound, big as your fist, and his jaw and neck, and, uh, and in his eyes, his eyes, the strangest, it looked like someone had stuck something in him and, you know, I'd never seen anything like it. And uh, I knew that this was very serious. And uh, as I said, I was missing the deadline earlier, but I knew there was a payphone down there in the alley. So I ran off the balcony, ran down to that payphone, and uh, I was, uh, got my, uh, uh, office in New York on the phone and then told him that what had happened and uh, gave him the first reports from uh, the Lorraine. When we come back, we'll hear how this one story changed Caldwell's life forever as a reporter. You're listening to The Voices of King.
In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. I'm Ernie Suggs. And I'm Ned Ravone. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Welcome back to the Voices of King, a podcast presented by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Before the break, former New York Times reporter Earl Caldwell told us the story of what he witnessed on April 4th, 1968, when civil rights leader Dr. Martin Luther King was shot at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. Puya Dianat and I conducted the interview with Caldwell in 2008. Here's Puya talking about what stuck with him after that interview. I think what's interesting is that I had an opportunity. We we had very talented reporters on this, Jim Moody and Ernie Suggs. They interviewed a lot of folks, but the three people that you and I had a chance to interview, uh, Caldwell was the one that was talking all about that moment, I felt like. Billy Kyles was talking about everything that led up to that moment, the king coming to Memphis. And with John Lewis, I felt like he really talked about the future. But Caldwell's details of the things happening in that moment, it it was like a a fly-on-the-wall perspective that no one else was able to give. Because when that shot rang out for everyone else, it was all of their hopes, all of their dreams in pure tumult at the time. They weren't thinking just about that second. They were thinking about this entire movement and everything that had happened. Earl Caldwell was taking notes. And that was, uh, you'll hear that in his stories and in his words, the descriptions he uses. Well, let's listen to the interview with former New York Times reporter Earl Caldwell. I was, uh, got my uh, uh, office in New York on the phone and then told him that what had happened and uh, gave him the first reports from uh, the Lorraine. How did that call go? Actually, that was very strange because I told myself, be very calm, be very calm. And when I, I, uh, I uh, call up, we had a credit card, telephone credit card went through, and uh, there was a woman who was the uh, clerk on the desk. Her name was Martha, and I was on the phone, and I said, Martha, it's Caldwell. It's an emergency. I need to speak to Claude. Sitton, Claude Sitton, who was the na- editor of National News. And Claude comes on the phone and uh, he says, what is it? And I say, and then I, I was telling myself to be cool, be calm. And I, all of a sudden, I just like had this moment of panic. I said, <laughs> and I'm coughing and can't really even get the words out. And Claude's saying, it's easy, easy, be, be calm, be calm, be calm. And I know he thought, geez, he's panicking. And, uh, but I mean, just after that first little thing, that passed, and then I was very, I was okay, and I told him what had happened. And I gave him the first reports. And uh, I was able to tell him what had happened, give the time. I could also tell him that this was going to be fatal. I could see by the wound and where it was. And I mean, it wasn't like he was bleeding. It was like, it was just something was just stacking up where he was laying. And uh, while I was, well, I, I, I didn't hang up on the phone. I ran back and people, I could hear people holler when I ran down there, call an ambulance, call an ambulance. I called my office. Uh, but at any rate, while I was there, when my line was still open, the ambulance came, I was able to get the name of the ambulance, the hospital, and everything. And I was able to give them, in New York, 
all of this information so that they could open lines to the hospital, the police, uh, they could get through to all these agencies before anyone knew and it would jam up the lines which gave our newspaper like we had a huge head start on it. This reporter I told you about earlier, Fraser, he told me and I came to New York Times in the summer of 67 when they had all these riots. And he used to go to these towns and people said, oh, you should have been here last night. Oh, you should have been here two hours ago. Oh, you're never there at that moment. Gerald Fraser told me that the New York Times sent him to Harlem for the reaction. He said when he got there, he had enough lead time that he got to Harlem before anybody knew. He said they, he just walked out in the street and waited. And he said that he could tell when the word hit that King had been killed. He said people came spilling out. He said, I saw the first window broken. I saw, he saw what you always want. You know, you're there at that moment, you saw it. There was this fellow standing off there. I don't know, all of a sudden I noticed he was there. I had the phone, so I told him. I said, if you're waiting for this phone, you have to go get your own phone. I said, this phone's gonna be tied up for the rest of the night. I was going to keep that phone line open to New York straight through. And this guy comes over to me and takes out his identification and says, I'm from the Justice Department. I had to commandeer that phone. And I looked at his ID and he took the telephone. But the guy says to me, he said he had to get through to the Attorney General in, uh, in Washington. So he, he said to me, but I'll tell you, I will, and I told him, when this guy was telling me, I said, no, I'm from the New York Times. Well, he trumped me with the Justice Department thing. So, but he did tell me, he said, but no one will get this phone. I'll make sure that you get it back. So in a way it worked for me. This allowed me to go back and ask more questions, get more information and come back and have the phone. So I had, I had a line to New York and I could, I could uh, 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 begin to uh, get information and get right through. But you know what a reporter does, you're, you go around and you're asking everybody, where were you standing? What did you see? Where were you standing? What did you see? And of course, one of the first persons I went back to was Solomon Jones. I went to Ciola Shavers. I went to these people that were standing down there. They were jumping up and down. That was Jesse Jackson, Andrew Young, Jim Bevel, all of King's inner circle. I don't know. One of the things is that in a reporter, as a reporter, you talk to, you know, 10 people, 15 people, but you only quote one or you quote two. And why do you select that one and that one? And a lot of times it has to do with your being able to understand what they're saying. And a part of that is when I talked to Solomon Jones and he said he saw... He told me that the shot was fired from the bushes. Mind you, we're in Memphis. We don't know anything but what's happening right there. We're just like a little self-contained thing. And we know something, but nobody else knows. So you're just talking to people right there. Solomon Jones told me the shot came from the thicket. And he saw this figure. I'm not sure now, but it's in my story. Uh, Ciola Shavers told me that she had, when she dropped that bottle outside my door, she told me later that she had gone on across the balcony. And she told me that when she got to Dr. King's room, 306, that she had stopped there at the, room, the door for a mi minute, I don't know, not to do anything, it was just like it was Dr. King's door. And you know, for this little motel, this was the biggest thing that probably happened to them in a long, long time for Dr. King to be there. And she said she was right at the door when the door opened. She said the door just suddenly opened. And she said she was eyeball to eyeball with Dr. King. And in a way, she said she was embarrassed because Dr. King. And secondly, she, he greeted her and everything. And so she was very nervous. But she told me that she went on then across the balcony. Now, I suspect by what she told me, that she walked away and Dr. King came out and he began talking to these people from the balcony and that she lingered there for a minute or two. And then she said she went on down the stairs and she was going away from the balcony. She said she was going to the office. But she told me what Solomon Jones told me, that she saw this figure in the bushes and that she thought that's where the shot came from, the bushes. 
she saw what Solomon Jones saw, and I knew what they were talking about because I saw this figure in the bushes. I didn't see this figure shooting. I didn't see as much as Solomon Jones had saw, but this figure was doing something I didn't know what it was. So I'm reporting to New York, as a matter of fact, in my story, it says what Solomon Jones. Solomon Jones wound up going to the federal penitentiary and he said before he went in that he was being railroaded because he wouldn't change his story of what he saw at the Lorraine Motel at the instant Dr. King was killed. When he came out of prison, he said the same thing. Then he said he's not talking about it anymore and he never did. He's dead now. Uh, through that night, and after, I, the story in New York City, the story in the New York Times next day carries my byline only. But because all of this happened right on the deadline, you know, I was missing the deadline there when this story broke. But because it happened right on deadline, you're working through a rewrite man. The newspaper gave me probably the best person it had for that, Peter Keese, fabulous reporter. Uh, as a matter of fact, some, well, and let me just stay on point. Uh, Peter Keese was getting information because New York Times had opened all these lines. So they were getting information from other places, including getting information from the police and the government sources. And they told them this story about James Earl Ray, the gunman shooting from a distant flop house and all of that. But all, I knew nothing of that. Peter Keese was telling me, but I'm telling him what I saw and what we had from the scene. Uh, the New York Times, of course, is an official newspaper and these official sources, they loom large. But in this story, that would be a large part of it. Uh, and, and so that element was in, the, in my, was in the top part of my story. The story only carried my byline, but uh, there were a lot of hands in that story that night. But of course, it was my byline because I was the reporter who was there. It was my story. In the days and uh, weeks that followed, where did you go? Did you go to Atlanta for the funeral? Did, uh, how, did, how did everything shape up after that day? Well, it was incredible. First beginning with that night. I didn't know these people, mind you. But after King had gotten killed, after the murder, after they had taken him off to the hospital, I think Andy Young and Abernathy went with them. The rest of us were there at the motel. Uh, and, and one of the things I must say is that uh, Jesse Jackson, who got a lot of criticism, he began, I could see him that night taking leadership. Uh, there was going to be another rally out at that same place where they'd had the rally the night before. And I heard him say, someone needs, they said, uh, I forget how he said it. I forget how it came up, but I heard Jesse say, no, 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 no. Someone go out there. He said, you don't just let those people out there with, uh, to, to do, with no instructions. Someone needs to go out there because it was worried and there was already reports that rioting was starting in Memphis. Police said, there's a court on around the motel. Nobody allowed out and nobody allowed in. There was another fellow whose name I don't remember. I don't even know how I came in touch with this person. But this person drove, to, we, we called ourselves sneaking out of the motel, got in this person's car, he drove me all around Memphis. I reported it with some rock and bottle throwing and stuff. And then we came back to the motel, called ourselves slipping back in uh, because I'd heard the police say that there's a court on around the motel. Nobody's allowed out, nobody's allowed in. But we went out and did that so I could add that to my story. Uh, but Jesse Jackson said someone should go out there to that hall and dismiss those, talk to those people and give them advice. And then that evening, I'm around all King's guys asking them what they saw and all this kind of thing and everything. And in the room next door to King's room, I don't remember whose room it was. But in that room, we began to gather. I remember James Bevel was there and Jesse was there and a lot of the other inside people were there. As a matter of fact, I was in that room and I was listening to what everybody was saying and 
you know, you're, you're hearing this inside. People say, James Bevel said, murder, 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 murder. Doc always said, that's not the way. But what, what does this tell us? We're standing there, we're looking, and he's murdered like this. He said, well, what does that tell us? And they're questioning their, what they believe in and what, they've, what their whole philosophy was. And they're saying all these things. And I'm thinking like, wow. I have to go down and call into New York and I get up to try to go. So Jesse Jackson said, where are you going? I said, I'm just going out to get some air. Sit back down. And they told me to sit. So I went back and sat back down. Uh, it was just like it was this tension in there. James Bevel, one time, he stormed out of the room. He was just too upset with the... He said that he didn't feel that... He didn't feel... He didn't feel that they were... He didn't feel that maybe, meaning they, meaning those people who were kings in her circle, that they were paying proper attention to what they had just witnessed. And he stormed out of the room. <laughs> and then he came back in, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes later, and he said, did you see Roy Wilkins? Did you see him? He said, it's the best I ever, that's the best I ever heard him in my life. And he started talking about that. Roy Wilkins had said, according to Bevel, that... Uh, Oh, we were watching TV. We saw him. And he had said, they had asked him to go out in the streets and uh, try to cool things. And he said it wasn't the night for him to do that. It was for other people that he wouldn't do it. Uh, but anyhow, we stayed in that room all night long. Uh, I would try to sneak out when I could to go down and make a phone call. But mostly I stayed in that room until people just began to fall asleep. One of the things that happened to me was when I ran out of the room, I forgot my key and I was locked out of my room. I couldn't get into my room. And it was hard to get anything from the office or anything. So I couldn't get into my room for the longest time. I don't even know if I was able to get in back in there that night. But at any rate, at some point, the New York Times told me that they were holding a plane at the airport in New York and they were flying people in to help, you know, some bunch of other reporters in. I know they thought Caldwell's panicked, although I got a telegram from Clifton Daniel about, oh, about 7 o'clock in the morning, and he said that, uh, uh, because they couldn't reach me, because my phone was, uh, I was locked out of my room. So uh, he sent me a telegram saying that, uh, congratulating me, he said, because you've been running ahead of everybody all night, and everything you've reported, all of your facts, everything stood up and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the next morning, when the king's people all came down, they said that Coretta was coming in a plane to get the uh, body. And uh, because I had bonded with them that, that night before, now I was just like, almost like one of the circle. I, they would ha be talking. I could be right there and be right in it. Then they said, Coretta called, said she doesn't want to step foot on the ground in Memphis. She's not getting out of the plane. Uh, so they get in their plane, and then we go to the, we're going to the airport. And so I had my own car because I was just going to the airport, coming right back and write my story. And so we get to the airport. We got to the airport. Whew, they had, the National Guard was out there. They had, they had bayonets on their uh, they're standing out there with bayonets and keeping this crowd back. But there was an enormous crowd. I know people must have, as soon as they heard, they must have started coming towards a Luray Motel from all over. There was a huge crowd out there. And so they're putting their casket on the plane and doing all of this. There was this one woman. And she was standing like right in front of the plane, in front of... And all of a sudden, she just panicked. She just, she, I don't know what she wanted to do, but she said, I'm not standing behind any lines. She said, I've been standing behind lines all of my life, and you're not going to make me stand behind this line. And she's going to go through it. I'm thinking like, oh, my God, they're going to kill this woman. And I don't know. I think it was Reverend Bernard Lee was on the steps of the plane. He saw this, and he ran over, and he pulled this woman through that line and he talked to her got her settled down and then 
everything is settled down and everybody gets on the plane, then the doors close, then the door to the plane opens. I think it's Bernard Lee again, comes down, talks to the police, and he says something, then somebody runs over, goes over to the line and starts running down the line saying, where's that colored guy from the New York Times? Where's that colored guy from the New York Times? He runs past me, I'm thinking like, is he talking about me? And so I go over, I said, I, I think he means me. He said, they want you to get on that plane to go, to go over to Atlanta. That, you know, I think they felt somebody, well, in New York, they had a rule that said, you never leave the city that you're assigned to unless it's cleared by New York. Claude Sitton, I think he had 25 national correspondents. He had a map and there was a pin saying where the people were, but he needed to know where all of his people were at all the time in case something happened. But it's like a split decision. I'm thinking like, geez, my car is over here and I'm not prepared to go right now, but it's like, go right now. Well, anyhow, I go over there to Atlanta and I'm just said, what you do is just tell them you're in Memphis and then fly right back to Memphis on a commercial flight. Nobody will know and everybody will be happy. Your base will be covered. So I, I get over there, I call New York and I'm getting ready to tell this story and Martha answers the phone, she says, oh, Earl, we saw you getting off the plane. Claude said you did the right thing. I'm thinking like, oh, wow. If, what if he said I did the wrong thing? But at any rate, uh, I was over there in Atlanta and I stayed over there. He told me to stay over there that night, go back to Memphis the next day. So I stayed over there in Atlanta and you know did all this stuff I went to all this church I went down to the funeral everything and that night in Atlanta I thought I was losing my mind I don't know what happened something happened I just I got I checked into the Pasco Motel up there on uh, oh famous little black motel up there that I knew uh, from civil rights and I went over there and I was in there and I, I thought I was losing my mind I was really in extreme stress. I got dressed. It was raining like crazy. And I got in my car. I drove into downtown Atlanta. And I just drove around and around and around and around until I was exhausted. Daylight. I went back to the motel. And uh, then I was okay. The thing is, I went back to Memphis. And I went back. Oh, I when I was getting on that plane, I threw my car keys to another reporter, told him to get my car and take it to the Lorraine. I'll see him over to Lorraine. And I just and when I got back there, I got to my room and I'm looking. I couldn't figure out what it is. What happened? Something. And that was the first time I noticed. I'm standing in my doorway. Maybe you're trying to put together what happened the night before, you know? You're... Somebody had cut that thicket across from the motel to within an inch of the ground. It was totally gone. I didn't really put any stock in it at that time. I just, I don't know, maybe it was dangerous. Who knows what? But I, I noted that. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the, uh, what for me, the, the, by the way, by then, all of these reporters had come into, from the New York Times, had arrived in Memphis, and they were going to start an investigation into the assassination. Very interesting. None of those reporters even really talked to me about what I saw. Just assume that you're there. You didn't see anything. And they began to... Uh, do their investigation, but it wasn't an investigation into the killing. What they were doing was following the official story that said James Earl Ray did it, and they were following that aspect of it. For me, I was assigned to cover uh, the leadership of SCLC, which was Abernathy then and Jesse and all of that, which I did. For me and my career at the New York Times, you know, 
If you're a reporter and you're ever where the thunder and lightning is and you're there, it changes your, it changes your situation within the organization. You say, whoo, he was under fire and he, he did good. Or he was, he, we had him out there and he, he, he messed up. Well, mine was, he did good. But because the events, the, what happened the day later was such a, so enormous. But supposing King doesn't get killed, and I have to explain why I wasn't there and didn't hear the mountaintop speech. Uh, you, you couldn't explain it. Uh, and it was the same way with, the, with a lot of these things, you know, with the, uh, uh, you just, there's things that you just do and you uh, hope they all work out. In the next episode of The Voices of King, we will hear from the widow of Reverend Ralph David Abernathy, Juanita Abernathy. She tells the story of her husband's close relationship with Dr. King and the dangers her family endured during the movement. A special thanks to AJC reporters Rosalind Bentley and Ernie Suggs, also to senior editor of visuals Sandra Brown. Be sure to visit www.ajc.com. I'm Ryan Horn, and you've been listening to The Voices of King. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.